Amen. Take your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter number 4. Sometimes I hear folks say, well, Brother Andrew, why doesn't God do miracles like He did in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Jesus? Why did miracles not exist today? My friend, you are looking at one. And you're sitting next to one. And by God's grace, I pray that you are one. A miracle of God's grace when He saved your soul. What a blessing it is to know that we are on our way to heaven, that we know Christ. And there's a whole lot of people that are good to know in this world, but I can't imagine one being better to know than the Lord Jesus Himself. Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Now, as I was studying, preparing for this message, one of the preachers that I was listening to as I was trying to kind of compile some ideas for uh, the message, he said that these are probably the most difficult 11 verses in Scripture. So I said, nothing like a good challenge on Sunday morning, right? I hope you brought your Starbucks this morning and got yourself good and perked up to take on a challenge as we study God's Word today. Verse number 1 of Hebrews chapter 4. The Bible says, let us therefore fear. If that doesn't set the tone for the entire passage, I do not know what does. Let us fear. I don't believe the Christian life is to be one of fear. In fact, the Bible says, perfect love casteth out fear. There is no fear in love. So what is the Word of God trying to say this morning? Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest... Any of you should seem to come short of it. Rest. God promises rest. And the fear that we ought to have is that we in some way might miss the rest that God has provided. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For... We which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on, on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his work. That is, referencing the work of God and creation, how he created the worlds and the universe and the, the creatures that take up residence on this planet. He created it all in six days, and on the seventh day God rested. And he left for us an example of rest. And verse 5, And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest... Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now that is hugely important to unlocking the passage. Why, what would prohibit someone from taking full advantage of the rest that God has to provide for us? What would prevent someone from going to this place or this condition or this state of rest in God? What would keep us out of that? Well, the same thing that kept these folks out of it. Unbelief. Unbelief. Verse number uh, 7. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, verse number 8 is interesting because the word Jesus there, or the name Jesus there, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. This may come as a surprise to you, but Joshua 
in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. And it's the same thing that Jesus' name would have been in the New Testament. So in Jesus' town, folks didn't necessarily call Jesus, Jesus. They called him Yeshua, which was the same exact name that Joshua, the understudy to Moses, would have had. Yeshua. And so when we say our name is Joshua Baptist Church, certainly we're named after the town Joshua, but there is maybe a deeper and more underlying meaning to that, that we are Jesus' Baptist Church. Take that first Baptist Church. Nonetheless, we, I move on. I digress. But I believe in verse number 8, it is not speaking of the New Testament Messiah of Jesus. It is speaking of the Old Testament man who brought the children of Israel into the Promised Land, Yeshua or Joshua, that is the Greek translation of his Hebrew name. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. In other words, Joshua entered into the promised land with the children of Israel, but he spoke of another day that would come, a a day in the future that was yet to be fulfilled. Now verse number 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. I hope hope that verse after today's message means a little bit more to you. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, the writer of Hebrews is not known to us. Now, many commentators and Bible students for centuries have tried to say, well, I think it was this man, or I think it was this man. And some people say, well, it has a bit of a Pauline feel to it, and I don't believe that. Other people say, well, maybe it was Luke, or, or uh, some I've even uh, say possibly it was Timothy. We really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know based upon the wording the, 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 the methodologies that he uses, that he himself was a Hebrew who had been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and, and in, the, in that salvation, he looked back at the old way of trying to do things, of the process of atonement and bringing the lamb sacrifice and, and going to the high priest and doing all of those things. He looked back at that with tremendous, uh, 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 at least he understood it was God's plan, but he looked back at it and said, boy, I'm glad. I don't have to do that anymore. Because he understood that all of the works that were in the Levitical system could never in any way be superior to that work which Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And he understood that. But unfortunately, many of his brothers who had come out of Judaism into a faith in Christ, there was a pool back to the the old way. There was a draw that something inside of them, and by the way, I think it's ingrained in mankind to want to work to please people. To work to get the promotion. To work to try to get the reward. To work, and we teach our kids from a very young age that if you want the ribbon, if you want the prize, you've got to work to get it. I think it's ingrained in human psychology that we would earn the things that we get. Very few things in this world come freely with no strings attached. And so when we come to salvation, sometimes we have to scrap that whole mindset when God says, I've done it all. All you have to do is accept it. 
And so these Hebrews were drawn back into that old way and that old line of thinking of, well, maybe I need to do the Levitical law and maybe I need to please God. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing for the purpose to say, the old way could never in any way be better than the new way. It is recognized as the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant being Jesus Christ as our high priest. Jesus Christ as the lamb that was slain for us. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And that's the purpose of the book of Hebrews. And in this passage, as well as the chapter before, he uses this concept of rest. Rest. In fact, in our passage alone, in the 11 verses we read, the word rest is, re- uh, is mentioned eight different times. It's the, it's the driving force behind his message. It's what he's trying to convey. This rest, and don't miss the rest, and try to get the rest that God provides. Now, to a Hebrew, rest would have been an entirely different concept than it would be to an American. To a Hebrew, you've got to imagine that they are the most embattled nation in world history. From the very beginning, people have been at war with them. Uh, There's some biblical themes to that and theology to that, but certainly they will be at war until the day Christ establishes peace in this earth. They will be the most embattled people. And it seems like you read a few chapters of peace and prosperity only to find another kingdom coming to besiege them. And certainly there were reasons for that as as they would often fall into idolatry and other forms of rebellion against God. And God would use those foreign nations as chastisement to bring them back to Him. But they are constantly at war in the Old Testament. And for the Hebrew Rest would say, hey, you don't have to fight the wars anymore. God's already done it. God gives you rest. But more than like real world circumstances, rest was something they did weekly. You see, the Sabbath day was instituted by God and it was put there and designed so that man would would designate that as a holy day. The Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So when they didn't go to work on on the Friday to 6 o'clock, to Saturday at 6 o'clock, when they didn't work there, and when they didn't leave their, their property there, that was not only a physical benefit of being a, a God a, a follower, it was a spiritual a statement of their belief in God. In fact, every Saturday was, in a sense, an act of worship. As they rested, they said, God, we rest because this is your day. Boy, in America, we've changed that on Sunday, haven't we? It used to be God's day. Now it's just the day we give God the first half of the morning, then we get the rest of the day off. What a shame it is how much we've changed. But to the Israelite, to the Jew, rest was as much a spiritual benefit as it was a physical benefit. You know, in America, we're quite different than that, though. You know, Americans are the type of people that plan vacations and fill their itineraries so full that when they come back home, they're more tired than when they left. You don't believe me? Plan one Disney World trip and see how much rest you get. Now, you go to Disney World. Well, the park opens at 9 o'clock. We've got to be in line at 8.30. 
We've got to get full benefit of the entire day, so we're going to stay out. We're living on property, but we've got to be at the trolley station at X number of time. I mean, your day is full. I remember my mom and, and dad took us to Disney World some years ago, and they, they decided they were planning this trip for the kids, and we spent two out of our three days at Epcot instead of the Magical Kingdom. What a blessing. It was really moving watching those governors talk. The wax figurines as I'm watching Congress take place. And Space Mountain was way overrated. But nonetheless, I'm not bitter about it at all, as you can tell. (laughs) Mickey Mouse wasn't at Epcot. He was at the Magical Kingdom, of course. Americans, we, we go to like a place like Branson, Missouri, we come to our hotel, we check in, and there in the lobby is a, a rack full of pamphlets and flyers for uh, 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 whitewater rafting and trout fishing and, and uh, rappelling and zip lines and, and heaven knows what else, World War Museums and everything else. And I mean, we go over to that and like, look what we can do on our rest trip. A new planet so full. American ideals of rest are so strange. We, we say, boy, I'm tired. I need to go home from a long day of work and I need to get home so I can get in bed. And then we lay in bed and scroll on our phone for another hour and a half. Rest is a strange concept to Americans. But God, in this passage, promises rest. My friend, the rest that God provides is better than anything that we could ever schedule or vacation to. We've got to make sure we don't miss this rest. And that's what the purpose of this passage and that is what the purpose of this sermon is today. But rest is not mere inactivity. Because you study the ministry of Jesus and of Paul, it wasn't that they were inactive, yet they both had the rest of God. That's how Paul could say, I have found whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. He had rest, but he was constantly busy. It isn't peace with circumstances at all times. It's not just an easy life. Because Paul said, man, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned, I've been cold, I've been journeys long, I've been, I've been uh, mugged by people. Man, my life has not necessarily been easy, yet he had rest. Man, that's rest that I want. And that's rest that our world cannot provide. So let's study this morning. Five key components of the rest that God provides. Number one, this was a prepared place. Now, back up to chapter 3. Generally, I would have covered this in the introduction, but I didn't want the sermon to get too lengthy, and Brother Marshall says, Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Marshall. That's the only way we can get him to say amen. That's the only spiritual time he displays any bone in his body about spirituality. But uh, notice in chapter number 3, verse number 7, you've got to understand what the writer has done as he introduced this concept of rest. What, what does it have to do with... Uh, remember, he's a Hebrew and he's trying to borrow from Old Testament concepts and Old Testament imagery. And he's trying to explain to them what it is. Verse number 7, the Bible says, Wherefore... As the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the, in the provocation and the day of the temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now what are these verses talking about? It's speaking about the forty years of wandering in the wilderness where they came to the precipice of the promised land and because of their unbelief and their lack of faith, 
that God could in fact deliver the promised land to them, they, they were not able to enter into that place, and so they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Notice verse number 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. The, Old Testament, the Hebrew writer here is, is borrowing an Old Testament concept of the first generation of Israelites who came out of, out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And now look over into the promised land. You remember they send the ten, 12 spies in. Ten were bad and two were good. They send them into the promised land and the report comes back that it's evil. Uh, ten say it's evil, we can't do it, and two say it's good. And the Old Testament, or the Hebrew writer is borrowing from this Old Testament concept of this moment in time where rest was right in front of them, but they rejected it on the basis of their unbelief. Now, this is also again mentioned, and, and in our passage he mentions that David said something, and that's a, 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 an idea from Psalm 95. David wrote it. You've got to imagine, uh, in fact, in our passage he says, and it says in a certain place, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse ca- categorizations. So he couldn't say, well, it says in Psalm 95, those didn't exist. So he would say, it says in a certain place, and based upon the verse, people would recognize kind of where that would be. And he says, well, David said... In Psalm 95, the same uh, type of message, 40 years long, was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. You see, the idea here is that they had the promised land ready for the taking, and yet they rejected it based upon their unbelief. You see, this was a prepared place by God for His people. Could you imagine being uh, one of the Israelites leaving Egypt? Coming out of hundreds of years of slavery and bondage, building pyramids. Uh, You have a child and you don't have any hopes or dreams for that child. You don't say, oh, I hope this child grows up to be a doctor, or I hope this child grows up to really contribute something great to society, because no matter the education of that child, no matter how much you help that child or love that child, the same result for every child existed in Egypt. They were all slaves, and they were all brick carriers. They were all just pouring their labor into Egypt. Miserable working conditions, a terrible place. And yet now God brings you out. He gave you Moses. And, and Moses, with a strong hand and ten plagues, brought the children of Israel out. Can you imagine the anticipation as they leave this place of misery and pain, only to look forward to what God has been promising all the forefathers? It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. All of these men heard of the promised land and they received the promise and they looked forward to the promise. And now you're leaving the place of bondage and you're going to the place of promise. And then you get there. And you look over into it. And the spies are sent out and the message comes back. It is indeed a place that flows with milk and honey. 
everything they said has been true. Have you ever gotten somewhere and you realize it was way over-promised and it definitely under-delivered? I went to the Alamo and I was like, so this is the model, where's the real thing? And sometimes things are just a little underwhelming. And I, I have to imagine as these one foot in front of the other, as they're traversing the wilderness, and they're going to the promised land, somebody in the back of their mind had to say, you know, what if we've talked it up? What if it isn't quite as good as what we've always thought it would be? Well, I can imagine it's probably going to be better than Egypt. Anything's got to be better than Egypt, but... Man, what if it's not very good? And they get there and the spies, they come back and they say, it's as good as we've ever imagined. In fact, they, 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 they have between two of them, they have a, a rod. One on one shoulder, going back to the other shoulder of another man. Perhaps there were even two men on both ends of this stick. And in between, carried on the rod, was a cluster of grapes. Now... My son can eat grapes with the best of them, but when we go to Walmart, all they do when we uh, pre-order our groceries is put one little bag in the back of the minivan. He goes and gets it any time he wants. The, the, the land that flows of milk and honey was a land of abundance. It was a land prepared for God's people. There were enemies in the land, but it wasn't the enemy's land. It was God's people's land. He had prepared it for them. And in this case, it is rest. And it met all expectations. In fact, it exceeded them. And God had prepared it for them. The idea here is of the folks making the decision. As you have the nation of Israel bouncing ideas off of one another. Surely they said it's, great, it's a great land. They said that it flows with milk and honey. They said that there is, I mean, we're looking at the grapes. We've never seen grapes like this. I mean, this is truly God's prepared place. And the, the idea here is that there was a moment in time where they're all bouncing the ideas off of one another where it says, well, do we go into the land or do we go back to Egypt? And you've got ten spies saying the land is good, but there's no way we can win. And then you've got two spies saying, we be well able to overcome it. We can do it. And you've got in these people's heart a moment of decision to whether they will cross the Jordan River and do what God has promised He could do, or if they keep going back, go back to the old way. You see, what this is, is this is, this is a decision of conquest. This is a moment in time where they have to decide once and for all if the same God that could bring them out of Egypt could take them into that place. Did you know that both types of people, the ten spies that say, it's good, but there's no way we could do it. And the spies that come back and say, we'd be well able to overcome it if God is for us. You know, every decision that we ever make, every spiritual decision we ever make, we are one of those two people. There's two archetypes of Christians here. There are those that now have to say, well, I know the promises of God are great, and I know that He's good, and I know that this Christian life that He's promised us, I know that He says He'll come through for me, I just don't know if He can do it. And then there's another side of Christianity that says, no, I know I don't understand it all, I know I don't have all the answers, but I can trust in God because God always comes through. 
You see, there's two types of people in this moment. In fact, when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to be one of these two types of people. In fact, when you bowed your head and you asked Christ to come into your heart and save your soul, you were one of these two types of people. Because when somebody came to you and said, Oh, dear friend, God said that He loves you. And the Bible says that you're condemned and you're a sinner. But in His love and in His grace and in His mercy, He is willing to forgive you and accept you. And He's preparing for you a home in heaven. He loves you. In that moment, you're receiving the promises of God that were prepared by by Christ Jesus for you. And you either are going to come to the conclusion... That it's so good, it's such good news, but there's no way that promise is truly valid for me. Or maybe you come to the same conclusion that I did the other day, or or some years ago when I was 12 years old, that I know I don't deserve the goodness of God. And I know that the message of the gospel seems too good to be true. But I know that if He can save uh, the worst of sinners, He can save me. I know that if he's willing to save the Apostle Paul who killed Christians for a living, I know he's willing to save this person. And in that moment in time, you're one of those two people. You reject the promises of God that were prepared for you or you accept them by faith. In fact, you you make these decisions all the time. You don't even realize it. Every time you decide whether or not to obey God with your tithe, you make this decision. It makes no mathematical sense that 90% could ever stretch farther than 100%. It makes no sense. But when, when God says, prove me, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you were not able to receive, you, in a sense, are looking over into the promised land, looking over across the Jordan River and saying, I don't know if God will come through for me, or you say with complete confidence, I've seen it too many times in the past, God always comes through for us. Every time we are a witness to somebody, I heard of of one of our church members witnessing to somebody this week. In fact, we had a word of prayer for them that they'd be at church this morning. You see, every time God asks you to be a witness to somebody in your life, you either say, well, I don't know if he's going to be able to give me the confidence and the words to say, or you truly believe in your heart that it doesn't matter what you say. God's Holy Spirit can compel the soul of the sinner with just the tiniest seed of the word of God. Every day we make these decisions, but these promises are prepared for us. And the only way we ever take full advantage of them is when we accept them by faith. It was a prepared place. I want you to notice, secondly, it was a promised place. A promised place. Notice in verse number 1 of chapter 4, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us entering into His rest any of you should seem to come short of it. Here's the sad thing, at least in my estimation, about the whole promised land situation. God had already promised Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and all of these great patriarchs. And He had even told Moses directly in Exodus chapter 33 that they would not be fighting the battle alone. 
You see, Exodus 33 says, Depart, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and all the people which thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, unto a land which I swear unto Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it, and I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. What does God say? I will be the one fighting the battle. He had promised to come through for them. He said, I will deliver the land. All you've got to do is follow me into the land. And yet their unbelief led them to say, you know what, I know that's a real promise from God, but I'm just going to ignore it. I wonder how many promises of God we fail to take advantage of because we will not pursue them in faith. We reject them on the basis that they're probably better utilized by somebody else. They're probably meant for somebody else. Oh, those are promises made only to preachers and pastors and the clergymen. How many of God's promises do we neglect to take advantage of? You know, Peter says it like this. We have exceeding great and precious promises have been given unto us, but yet we fail to take advantage. I noticed, in fact, this whole message, or at least a a, a sort of concept of another message kind of came out of this, and that was this. Faith always moves forward. When they're standing on the brinks of the Jordan River, they're, they're, they're looking over. I mean, they've got to follow. The, yeah, sure, there's adversity. There's a Jordan River, but you just crossed the Red Sea. You, you've got the Jordan River here, and then there's, there's Jericho just on the other side. Yeah, there's going to be battles, no doubt. In fact, what I find funny is the, the spies' report is basically this. Well, there's a lot of tall people. The wall's pretty big, and there seems to be a lot of them. No way God can overcome that. And it's like how I felt when I was in junior high going to play basketball against varsity. Well, there's a lot of tall people. There seems to be a lot of them. You see, I, I, I just they, they're looking over, and, and God wants them to, to pursue. God wants them to advance. God wants them to move forward. And it, instead, here is the conclusion that the nation of Israel collectively comes to. They hear the report of the spies and this is what they say. Let us appoint a new leader that can take us back to Egypt. In fact, they're willing to stone Moses, Caleb, and Joshua because they have the audacity to say, No, just believe in God! They're willing to stone them and they want to appoint some new leader to take them back where they came from. Listen, fear goes back. Unbelief goes back. Fear settles for where you are in the Christian life. That is where you're at. Don't don't stay there and certainly don't go back. Push forward in faith to proceed to the promises of God. He says, I've already fought the battles. I'm out in front of you. There's nothing going to catch me by surprise. How many promises do we neglect to take advantage of because of our unbelief? What is it that God wants to accomplish in your life? That he's unable to because we just won't follow him in faith. Maybe God wants you to be a servant in this church. I believe that the church is a community. I believe that the church is is family. I believe that the church ought to be close-knit. But I believe the church gets close-knit in the trenches, not in the pews. Maybe God wants to call you today to service. If your service to this church is being in the pew, I appreciate your help, but man, maybe God wants to ask more of you. 
Maybe God has an area of ministry of service for you. And maybe that's what God wants for you. And He says, uh, follow me. Follow me to be a minister to some little bus kid. Come see what it's like to lead some child to the Lord after a sermon in children's church. Just come this way. Follow me. And yet we kind of kick rocks and say, I'd just rather go back. How many promises of God do we neglect because of our unbelief? This is a prepared place and a promised place. I notice, notice number three, it was a preached about place. Verse number two. Interesting concept here. The Bible says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. Now, the word gospel here is not as we take it, the gospel being the death, burial, and resurrection in the context of the Old Testament. The word gospel here means good news or good tidings. So, Joshua and Caleb and even the ten evil spies, they come back with good news, right? The land is better than we could have ever imagined. It truly flows with milk and honey. I mean, look at the grapes and the figs. Look at it all. It's wonderful. That's good news. And they, they, this good news came back to them. And yet, because of their unbelief, they said, you know what? I don't think we can do it. Here's, here's a pretty interesting thing I want you to consider with me. As far as God was concerned... That was theirs. As far as God was concerned, they should be in it. But they chose that they would rather just let the enemy have it. The good news comes back. It's everything God ever promised. They say, yeah, but there's going to be some obstacles. I I don't know if we're really up for that. This gospel was preached to them and Aren't you thankful one day in your life the gospel, meaning the death, burial, and resurrection, was preached unto you? The gospel is the heartbeat of this book. The gospel is at the core and at the center of every major theme in this book. You say, well, it's not so much in the Old Testament. I disagree. In fact, the Bible says before God ever introduced the law of God, In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, listen here, this sounds like it's a passage taken from the New Testament. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, And that by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. God says, look, I'm going to give you the law, but listen, I'm willing to forgive. I know you can't keep all this law, but I am a good and merciful God. Jesus, when having the opportunity in Luke chapter 4 to initiate His ministry, He's about to start out in ministry, and He's there in the synagogue, and His selected passage of Scripture reads like this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus says, my chosen passage of Scripture that will define, it's a sort of a mission statement, that will define the direction of my ministry. I came to preach the gospel to the brokenhearted and to the weary and to the wounded. I came to seek and to save 
that which was lost. You see, this book runs over with gospel themes. And what a shame it would be if we as Christians fell to enter into the rest that is the gospel. I want you to notice chapter number 3 quickly. Verse number 12. Maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I, I feel led of the Lord to do it here. Notice in verse number 12, we just read 7 through 11 in chapter 3 to point out the fact that it was uh, a promised land. But notice in verse number, uh, verse number 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He says, take heed that you don't have an unbelieving heart. Now, we don't like to read passages like that because those are alarming. We, we don't like to read passages that might say that there's somebody with, within our congregation or within this place that might not have... Uh, a, a full assurance of their salvation. But the Bible here is saying, that's why you need to be in church. That's why you need to be in a Christian and spiritual community. That's why you need to be in this place. Because every day we're building each other up and every day we're lifting each other up to be spiritual and to love the Lord and to make sure that there is no heart of unbelief in us. You say, Brother Andrew, I know my heart pretty well. Yeah, Jeremiah tells us exactly how well we can know it. The Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, above all things, who can know it? In fact, Jesus says, from inside of man come all these things. And it was murders and envies and all sorts of atrocities. That comes from inside of you. Don't settle for the knowledge that, yeah, yeah, I think everything's good in my life. No, friend. True rest is an absolute confidence in the salvation that God provides for you. I am amazed at how many Christians go through life having to convince themselves to raise their hand when the preacher says, how many of you are sure you're on your way to heaven? I am terrified to think of how many Christians truly still struggle with the doubt that they may not make it if today the rapture were to happen. I was preparing for a message on the rapture on Wednesday night and I read of a youth camp that played a trick on the youth director. And he went off to go get pizza and when he came back, all of the uh, students of the camp had gone and they had put their clothes in little piles all around the place. In fact, there was a perfectly timed phone call to the, to the camp director. Uh, it was a person off campus and the phone rang and, and the camp director said, Hello, do you know where everybody is? And they say, I don't know, we're having the same problems over here. My friends, they asked how the guy felt. He said, yeah, I was a little scared for a little bit. <laughs> Truly, what if the rapture happened at this very moment? I'm not trying to inspire doubts in anybody's heart, but the idea here is of rest. The idea here is of complete confidence. The Bible says, These things have I written unto you that ye may know ye have eternal life. Jesus says you can know without a shadow of a doubt you're on your way to heaven. So why have the doubts? Why settle for anything less than complete confidence that the promises and the prepared place that God has made is for you? Oh, dear friend, don't delay, don't wait. If you're at 99% sure, that is not enough when you're talking about eternity. You know how many 1% are going to be in hell? What a shame it is that we would ever settle for anything less than complete confidence. 
I believe the more you're around a Christian community, the more you build up in faith. And faith develops in your life. And that confidence only becomes more sure of a foundation in terms of your salvation. I want you to see it was not only a prepared place, a promised place, a preached place, but I want you to see number four, it was a passed on place. Notice verse number six. How did they miss this wonderful place that God had prepared and promised for them? Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in, because of unbelief. The first generation of Christians missed out because of unbelief. The second generation was able to go into the promised land, but then they made negotiations with the inhabitants. The Lord said you should drive them all out, and they were putting them to a treasury. They, they put them to a sort of taxed-based system that said, you know what, you can dwell here as long as you pay us. Compromise. They neglected the promises of God because they were not willing to fight the battles that God had for them to fight. They knew that what God had said, but they chose to not believe in His Word. See, this morning, I want you to know, the good news came to them, but the reason the gospel, or the good news in this passage, didn't take is because it was not met with a heart of faith. It was not mixed with faith. Say, Brother Andrew, your sermons are getting longer and less good. My friend, that's probably true, but sometimes the problem isn't with the preacher, but it's that when the preacher preaches, it's not met with any sort of faith. That's what it says, the gospel was preached unto them, and yet it was not mixed with faith. Today, God has something for you. I wonder how many Christians come to church and truly, in every event that they've ever come to, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever it may be, when is the last time God spoke to you? Like, church is not an exercise. Church is not just an event. Church is truly worship of the living God. Church is that Christians might come and be challenged by the Word of God. And sometimes it's encouraging and sometimes it's maybe even convicting. But when's the last time you left church and you said, you know what, it was good for us to be in this place today. Maybe God's speaking to you today. This was a passed on place because they knew what God said, but they rejected to take advantage of the promises He had made. And then fifthly, we notice quickly, as i got to hurry, we're almost done. It is a present place. Now this is what the whole message has come to. Notice in verse number 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. The Hebrew writer, though he is borrowed from this Old Testament concept of the promised land, he is saying that is not the final rest for the Christian. Aren't you glad we don't all have to move to Israel just to find the rest that God provides? I don't know, I had somebody tell me this week from California, they said, if I could live one place in the world, I would live in Texas. And I said, amen, it's the, ne- it's the New Testament promised land, actually. I said, why is that? He said, well, I went to a rodeo and... Good grief. They said, uh, if you don't want to stand for the national anthem, you can leave. They prayed the gospel in Jesus' name. You go around, there's Trump signs in everybody's yards. I mean, this is not a bipartisan sermon. I'm just saying, this is what his words were. Or partisan sermon. He, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm, he was like, I would live in Texas if it was my choice. 
Aren't you glad you don't have to move somewhere to find the rest that God provides? The Hebrew writer here says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. It's not something that's past tense. It's something that the New Testament believer can take full advantage of. So the question is, how do we enter the rest? Notice in verse number 11. Let us, lay, therefore, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Listen as I close. The avenue by which Christians acquire every spiritual blessing of God is through faith. He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You cannot find the blessings of God. You cannot find the peace of God. You cannot find the rest of God apart from faith in Him. Sometimes we think of faith as this mysterious thing that we can't grab a hold of. Faith is simply reading this book and saying, you know what? I believe it. No matter what my preconceptions were, no matter what the experience of my life has taught me, if God says it, I believe it. Belief is kind of an important theme throughout the Word of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He spoke to His disciples later in John chapter 3, saying, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He told Martha, as she's grieved over the loss of her dear brother Lazarus, Jesus told her in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You know how to access the rest of God? Believe. Believe in the promises of God and believe in the prepared places of, that He is preparing for you. You say, what does that mean? It means that wherever God wants to take you, just follow Him to that place. If that is the promised land, if that is a bus route, if that is just to a Sunday school class, you follow God and you listen to the voice as He calls you and leads you. Follow after God and believe in Him and you will find rest. My parents watch a little Fox News from time to time. I do not as much. I catch the highlights on YouTube and I get through all the arguments that sound like toddler temper tantrums. But my parents do watch it. And the other day we were at the ranch watching a little TV together. And man, I tell you what, the MyPillow guy is making a fortune. I'm proud of him. I'm happy for him. I mean, he, I think he's a, he's a man of faith. He wears the cross. I, I'm not entirely sure what he believes, but he certainly is a man of faith. Uh, I, the reason I say he's making a fortune is because years ago it was, buy this pillow. And if you buy this pillow, I'll give you an extra pillow. And then two days ago, I saw, buy this pillow topper. Now he's topping mattresses with a pillow topper. And then just yesterday, I believe it was, I saw him selling towels. That seems like a a market jump, doesn't it? From the bed to the bathroom. Boy, before too long, he's going to own Bed Bath & Beyond. I wonder what his Beyond's going to look like. See, this guy's making a fortune selling the idea that I'll give you better rest, isn't he? This will be the most comfortable pillow you've ever bought. If not, I'll give you your money back. 
This would be the most comfortable pillow mattress you've ever had. If not, I'll give you your money back. This would be the... I don't even know how you have a good towel. This towel absorbs more water after your shower than any other towel in the whole wide world. So if not, I'll give you your money back. He's getting rich off selling the idea of rest. But Jesus started it when He said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The reality of Scripture is this. Rest, as we know it, is not found in a pillow. It's not found in a place as the promised land. It is found in a person. And that is belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And today He invites you to come and believe on His name. Every promise of the Christian life is accessed through faith in Jesus. And every promise, the beginning promise, the first promise found in the sinner's life is this, that Jesus promises to save you if you only believe in His name.